Well, good morning. I'm going to start with a a reading in Scripture from Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 47. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Well, welcome to Crosswinds. Uh, it's good to be with you today. Thank you to all the deacons for giving us donuts and uh, um, coffee and the stuff this morning. We appreciate your service to us. If we haven't met yet, my name is Ken and, and I want to welcome you to Crosswinds Church. This is a place where you will be loved and this is a place where you will be accepted. It doesn't matter whether you're short or whether you're tall or whether you're... Um, conservative or liberal or whether you're young or whether you're old or whether you're black, white, yellow or brown, whether you consider yourself gay or whether you consider yourself straight, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether um, you love Jesus right now or you're just not sure about him, you are going to be loved and you are going to be accepted in this place. In the text I I just read, um, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. You know, often people find their greatness in some of the identities that I just mentioned before. But what truly gives us value and makes us great is something that we all share, that we were made in the image of God. And that is something we don't have to compete for to gain. Each of us are made in his image. You know, our life groups are going to be starting on Wednesday, September 15th. And and we're doing a study called Imago Dei. Um, It's about our significance in being made in the image of God. And that significance is given to all people. You know, the world will teach us that we are simply a cosmic accident. and, and, And go out and compete (laughs) <laughs> and push everybody else down. That's And then feel good about yourself. That's kind of the way the world works. But Imago Dei says that we were made lovingly by a creator in God's image. And, and see, if we, we, we believe the other, we often don't care about the other accidents around us, right? See, understanding Imago Dei is something that will change how we feel about ourselves ultimately, but also it should feel how we uh, change how we feel about our neighbors, no matter how different they are from us. So if you would go to um, xwinschurch.org and scroll down, there'll be a button where you can just sign up and be a part of it. All the adults can do it and the youth will be meeting at the same time we're doing a, a study through John. You know, most of the conflict that we see in the world today between races, between sexes, between families, between ideologies, because our identities are, are rooted in those lower things like sex, race, families, ideologies. Imago Dei is a higher thing that actually is where greatness comes from. You know, I personally struggle with trying to be great. I desire to be a great dad. I desire to be a great husband. I, I, I desire to be a, a great pastor. I, I desire to be great 
at all the things I do. But often, this desire to be great is what really trips me up. See, it can create a lot of insecurity in me, which makes me competitive, which makes me sin in how I treat others. This insecurity can make me fearful, which is the opposite of faith. And if unrepented, it, 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 it tends to drive me into sin. Because basically my need to be great is pride. See, the, the true reality is already there of greatness in Imago Dei. It's not something we achieve. And, and see, most of us are, are trying to seek our greatness outside of Imago Dei. And that often treats, uh, makes us treat each other somewhat badly. See, we all, I think, know that there's greatness in us, but we, when we seek to be great, we can, you know, do it in the wrong way. Some of us try to do it in the way we look and, and what we wear. And, and some of us try to try to be great in how smart we are. And, and many men are taught to prove our greatness and how strong we are. And women compete for greatness and, and maybe um, external things or, or how much they love. Um, we all do it differently. Some compete for greatness in their family, trying to be that favorite child. And, and, and some compete um, to, for greatness to be the top employee or, or um, be top in their businesses with profits. And, and some compete for greatness to have the best looking home or the best looking gardens and other compete for greatness with their kids. They, they, they make them compete in athletics and, and academics so that the parents get honored by their children's greatness. And still others compete with their political ideologies. And this competition, you know, um, creates even more division. Um, our, all of our competition leads to the destruction of marriage because it, it ignores the unique differences that God has made in each of us to help us along in life. And instead, we tend to compete and exploit the differences so that we can win and be greater. Even in churches, there, there can be competition to be greater in knowledge than someone else or more pure in your doctrine and we put others down. Now, I'm not saying competition is not healthy sometimes, but when it starts to divide people who are, are created in God's image to love one another, there's something wrong. You know, in the last presidential campaign, President Trump had a slogan, Make America Great again. And then Biden came along and he had one that was our best days still lie ahead, which if you think about it, uh, uh, you know, created competition of ideas, ideas about the past greatness, make it great again, and ideas about a, a future greatness, the, the future lays ahead. And, and this basic competition in our political ideologies has divided us a lot as a nation our country is divided racially, sexually, and generationally. And I'm sure both men felt that they were a blessing of God to our country. 
But I think Jesus' slogan would be different. It might be, make America humble again. Or wait, that doesn't work. That assumes we ever were. Maybe it's humble days lie ahead. Well, no, that's we don't want to wait to be humble, do we? I think Jesus' campaign is humility is greatness now. Right? Humility is greatness now. So today, let's look deeper at God's word and learn from him, our great humble king, about what greatness really is. So we see in verse 46, an argument arose among them, the disciples, of which of one of them was the greatest. And, and see, the problem with competition to be great is it creates divisions. It creates arguments. That's what it does among people who love each other, brothers and sisters. But there's another problem. It often distracts us from seeing true greatness. Think about this situation. Jesus has just described the greatest love ever, that, that God would come and die to redeem his creation. And, and the disciples, instead of talking about their friend's death and sharing that message with others, the great news of God's love, they are arguing about their own greatness. And this won't be the only time in Scripture that these guys will do this. You will see the... The, the, the disciples are arguing greatness about who's greatest. And, and friends, the answer is so simple. Jesus, duh, right? He's the greatest. So the argument is a waste of time. And most arguments we have are a waste of time, aren't they? And if we think about what happened in the context of the story, Jesus picked out three disciples and he went up on a mountain with them and they had this amazing spiritual experience, this mountaintop experience. And so these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are feeling pretty special. And they come down off the mountain, they meet with the other disciples who are having trouble casting a demon from a boy. And Jesus is telling them that it's because they don't have enough faith yet. And I'm sure James and John and Peter are thinking, hey, we're the A students. We must be the leaders of this gang. Now, didn't Jesus just say he was going to die in Jerusalem? Hmm, I bet he's leaving us in charge, us three. The three interpreting Jesus' actions start to overinflate themselves. But now the others are thinking, Peter, Jesus only took you with to keep an eye on you. Remember that whole get behind me, Satan thing? You're the EGR in our group. Jesus wants to keep you close so he can keep an eye on you because you have doctrinal issues, brother. You know what EGR stands for? Extra grace required. You know, beloved, I seek to spend at least an hour early in the morning praying and reading God's word as I follow Jesus. Now, you could interpret me telling you that is that Ken is really spiritual and prideful. But here's the truth. I'm an absolute mess. And extra grace is required for me to function somewhat normally throughout the day. That's the real truth. I know this because... 
This week was a really hard week for me, and one day I got so busy that I, I, I delayed my quiet time. I kept letting other things get in the way, and by midday, I was absolutely losing it mentally. See, Jesus' greatness is what helps me do anything great, any day. But here Jesus' disciples are arguing about who is the most important in the group. In, in the original language, they're arguing about who is the elder, who's the leader of the group. And Jesus is going to die for them all. And before he this happened, he said, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That was literally the last thing he said before this happened. And then it says that they didn't understand what he said. And, and maybe it was because their minds were already so focused. Our competitive nature often deceives us about why others are doing things around us. The reason is, if we only reason things within our own hearts, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's what the Bible tells us. And so our sin nature is inherently making us selfish and we tend to reason that we are of greater importance than we actually are. And so Jesus takes a child and puts him by his side. Why a child? Well, this is an illustration. This is an object lesson. A, a child in the first century had no status. They were basically property. They were seen as unimportant. In modern life, we, we actually tend to worship our children. But in this society that had a high infant mortality rate and they lived in rural areas where children were labor, you were not really valued until you arrived in life and, and could contribute. So so Jesus is using this child as an illustration. This child was a picture of humility. Someone who is not competing for status. Children were like servants. If you asked them to do something, they were obligated to do it. They, they didn't have rights the way most of us think of them. They didn't have any power. They just did what they were told. They helped to serve the family. The family was not obligated to entertain and serve them. Today we have a very child-centric culture. And sometimes our families revolve around the children and their schedules and everything about them. It's not always been that way. Um, some of you ancient people like me may have heard things like children are to be seen and not heard. I'm not sure if that was positive, but I heard that growing up. We, we were cared for by adults, but it, it was the adult's home, not ours. And that was just the way things were. Um, Jesus put this child by his side because he represented what was important. Right? Who was important? Humility was important. Notice he didn't put Peter by his side. For all who think it's really important to have a pope with fancy dress and fancy cars and palaces and religious ceremony, that's not who Jesus picked. He didn't pick Peter. And he didn't pick John by his side. John was amazingly deep and philosophical and intellectual. So maybe greatness is not found in great wisdom. And James and John were both called sons of thunders. And, 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 and he didn't pick them either. Um, so greatness is not about personal power. Instead, while the disciples were jockeying for position and apostolic status for greatness with each other, Jesus found the most humble 
person with no status and declared him the greatest. Now, again, the child is an illustration of himself. See, Jesus didn't come to the world and say, I'm the greatest, fall down and worship me. Instead, he came humbly like a child and has a child. See, the point is this child is most like him in nature, and yet he is the greatest. Jesus didn't come to this earth to compete with us. He came lower than low, born to a single mother under suspicious circumstances from a nowhere town. He was not particularly good looking. Actually, Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty that men would look upon him. They would actually turn their faces from him. Jesus was homeless for for most of his life. And, and, And the scriptures say foxes have holes and, and the bird of uh, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, like this child, had no status, but he was completely dependent, like a child, on his father to supply every resource he needed. He didn't compete and put down others to gain better resources. For himself. Instead, like a child, he was a servant to his family, which is humanity. Even though he created the world, the world didn't revolve around him. He was a servant of all. And though he was seen in the world often, often he was not heard because he was humble. He was not out to prove his greatness and the greatness of his opinions by putting down others. But people were drawn by his love. You know, in Mark's gospel, Mark, in the same story, said this, that Jesus said this, if anyone would be first, he must be last, a servant of all. See, all the disciples were trying to be first, trying to... um, be the one that Jesus picks. Oh, pick me, pick me. And Jesus picked the last person they would expect. Now, some of you may be thinking, I'm not proud. I'm the most humble person you'll ever meet. Really? (laughs) I trust you. Do you serve other people? Because not serving others is actually competing for your own greatness. See, Jesus and the child served others in their families. You know, I, I, I find we have great kids here at Crosswinds and, and I find most children are helpful when I ask them to do something to help me out here at church. It's more likely the adults or, or the parents that will complain thinking, who is he to tell me what to do? Don't pastor know I'm busy and how great I am in my professional life, my recreational life, or my family life. You know, we have a food packing event on September 25th for the people of Haiti. Friends of ours who are starving after an earthquake. And barely anybody, maybe four people, have signed up to help. We're going to pack 10,000 meals to send them. 
What's competing with your day that day? What's making, what's of more importance? How are you more important that day than doing that? Wouldn't that be making yourself great instead of Jesus? I mean, we've come to this place culturally that the people wait to the last minute to, to sign up for anything. And I think it's because they're waiting for a greater offer. Why not just take the first good offer? Not what makes you great. You know, we need to care for our children here. And we need to teach them about Jesus. And we need to teach our youth in youth ministry. But, you know, there are some that, 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 that have children and, 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 and their children are being served here. But they have never offered to help serve other people's children. And we need to expand and, and, and serve more children. Isn't that making yourself greater than Jesus and the other parents who are overworked? Why does it seem like everybody wants to serve on the praise team? Is that a place of greatness? Instead of with children, where you might have to diaper a baby and get a little dirty? You know, if you're blessed with the music and the preaching each week, and, and there's those weeks where you see the pastor struggling trying to preach and, and run sound, are, are, are you too great to say, hey, pastor, I can help? Or if you see two old guys like Kim and myself, sorry, Kim, with bad knees, moving tables around, schlepping tables around, or, or, or loading up equipment during the week, do you ever say, oh, I have more important things to do? Isn't that kind of the same thing the disciples were doing? I'm greater. Isn't that making yourself great? You know, Danielle, Jason, and Cleone are servants. They've been here every Tuesday and Sunday through the pandemic for a year serving in AV. If you don't have time to maybe relieve them once a month or, or give them a break, are you saying that you're greater? Are you putting yourself first and putting Jesus last and putting your other brothers and sisters last? You know, if you're a follower of Jesus and, and you're putting yourself first instead of ever serving the needs of others, what kind of message is that sending to the world? Nothing. It doesn't send anything to them. That's what they do. But shouldn't we be different? Right? We just look like them. This is God's kingdom. If we want them to see Jesus, they need to see us all like those children standing next to him, serving one another. Instead, often what they see when they come to church is a few exhausted ones serving everybody else. Trying to be great. This kind of consumer mentality towards church is destroying the work of the church. And it's not just here, it's, it's across America. Because the real servants are spending so much time serving those disciples who think they're too great. It pulls resources away from us who are serving who want to serve the world and those that really need us and those that need the message to get out to. 
Does that make sense? If we serve one another, we're all refreshed and we have more energy to help more people in the world. And I want to give some encouraging news. I'm not just here to beat you up. You know, this week, you know, our church was able to help a woman who had a fire in the house and, and, um, uh, you know, lost everything and, and, and she needed help with some bills and we were able to pay some of them and we were able to partner with the PMA and pavement. I, I put an email out to the other churches in town and within 10 minutes, Funds came in from four different churches, so the church works. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but, 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 but it could do so much more. And we do such great things, and this is a great church. But I want you to think: where do we compete for greatness with Jesus? I don't say any of this to motivate anybody with guilt. See, only Jesus knows our true motive. He only is the one that knows the reasons of our heart. There may be some of you out there thinking, but pastor, you don't understand. I have nothing to give. I'm too broken and I'm too poor. Or I'm too poor. And friend, I would tell you then give out of your poverty and give out of your brokenness. See, a child has nothing to give, but it's what it's been given. Somebody else has achieved everything they have to offer. Have you ever gotten a gift from a kid? They're really special. I love when the Sunday school kids come and give me a picture that they drew or a rock that they found. Parents, I'm sure you're the same way. It's wonderful because it comes from the love of their hearts. Beloved, you don't have to be great at anything to give. You just have to share the love that's been given to you. See, kingdom ministry is not about capability. It's about availability. Jesus is saying that's how you become great in God's kingdom. It's not about achieving something great and then giving it away. It's about humbly giving what you have yourself and letting him do great things with it. You know, here's one more way people, the other had to do with time. The other way people argue with greatness is with their money. You know, at Crosswinds, we try to teach that we give regularly, proportionally, and sacrificially, and, 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 and there's no way to measure what is reg, or proportional or sacrificial. That has to do with motive. But, but as a church, we count people because people count. And we, we track and, and I know if people are in attendance, they're growing and, and, and they're healthy in their faith. And we keep a budget because we need to be good, good stewards of what God gives us. And we have about 71 people right now who, who, who make the effort to check in with us and either online or in person each week. And, and, um, you know, in July for our budget, we received about a, a hundred and eight, $8,000 in gifts to support our ministry, which is a gift from God, and I'm thankful for it. And it was given by only 45 individuals or families, which is amazing. And I made a report. I didn't look at individual names or or amounts. I, my report was just to look at regularity. How was our regularity of being disciples? And I discovered something interesting. 92% of the support of our church came from only 21 givers. 92%, 100,000 came from 21 givers. 
that were regular. That was the only criteria I looked at. They were regular. And the way I defined regular was once per month. And then 8,000 of the budget was given by the other 25. And, and I'm thankful for any gift that people are moved to give for the work of the gospel. But here's my question. Do the other 25 or so, is something else competing in their lives for, for, for greatness most of the time? That they would let 92% of the load of the ministry be on 21 other people. I don't think their resources are that different. I think the difference is consistency and what we put priority to first. You know, and, and what's interesting, I think, and I'm not, I don't know for sure because I didn't look at any names, but I would guess that the same people who are serving our children and serving in ministries are the same people who are giving for the most part. It, it, it's, it's a choice of the heart. Is Jesus first or is our time and money first? And I don't give these examples to, to beat anybody up, but to illustrate the truth that we are all, me included, like these disciples, often arguing with ourselves, who is greater, me or those other people? Or me and Jesus. And, and friends, if you're already serving and giving here, I'm not, I'm not asking or begging you to do more in any ways. The work that we are doing as a church is amazing. We accomplish so much with so few. We've been in Africa, Cleonia and, and, and them are going to Africa today. That's a, you know, th- th- there's all kinds of stuff going on in Africa. I'm going to, to Sierra Leone coming up. Um, there's stuff we're doing in Haiti, all from this little church. It's, it's not about, uh, anybody in one sense, doing more. It's about what could we do if we all just helped each other? If, if, does that make sense? If we if we all stood next to Jesus regularly and allowed him to do great things through us, what could we do? How could we affect our community? How could we affect our world? Verse 48, he said this to him, them. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Did you notice there's a promise there? Whoever in scripture is a universal promise from God. Whoever receives this child receives ones like him. They, you know, they receive Jesus. The promise is that if we seek to serve others, others, even those of the the lowest status of our brothers and sisters, we receive something even more great. Jesus. You know, another thing about small children, which is amazing, is that status doesn't matter to them at all. Just watch them in the playground. Black, white, Short, tall, fat, thin, rich, poor. That doesn't matter. The objective is to play and have fun together. Status 
is a product of our fears as adults and the insecurities we get as we mature in a fallen world. Jesus says, whoever receives... See, it's, it's not about how great one can be. It's not about how talented you are or how wealthy you are or about how much wisdom you can offer. Kingdom greatness is about how you, you can humbly accept another and love them in Jesus' name. Are, are you humble enough to forgive the annoyances of others when they are not as great as we think they should be. It's not about the contribution to the world, friends. It's about the reception of the world. The reception of our brothers and sisters. Humbleness is about how much grace we have for others. See, one promise here seems to be dependent on the other. We can't receive him if we refuse to receive others, especially those that are lower than our own perceived status. We, we receive greatness when we humbly grace, give grace to others. We receive Jesus, which is greatness. Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In in 1 Peter 5, 6, it tells us the only way to be truly great is by humbling, receiving others. And then he goes on to say, humble yourself there under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Jesus says, whoever receives him, receives his father who sent him. To humbly die for us. See, the proud can't accept that. They have to achieve greatness for themselves. They have to achieve heaven for themselves on their own merit. And so the gospel of Jesus is a stumbling block to the proud. It's an extremely offensive thing. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, quoting Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But then he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a universal promise that if you humbly come to him, you'll be saved. But the proud will not believe in Jesus because Jesus stands with the dependent child like faith. They stumble over the reality that we need to be totally dependent on the goodness and the mercy of God for our salvation. It is an absolute stench to their pride because they can't compete to show everybody their greatness. But whoever believes or trusts in Jesus alone, like a child, will not be put to shame. Remember the disciples' pride kept them from hearing the gospel that could have saved him right then when Jesus said it. They were all concerned with their greatness. Their greatness was a stumbling block to them. If you will not receive Jesus like this child, depending, trusting in him for his greatness instead of your own, then you will know shame. The shame of hell 
Because the Father then will not receive you into His kingdom. Because you were too proud to receive His humble Son. The last thing Jesus said is, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And here Jesus is talking about himself. While in their minds they are all scheming about who is the greatest, they have not forgotten, or they have forgotten, and they didn't hear what he said. See, Jesus shared the most earth-shattering truth, and they missed it. It did not sink into their ears like he said it should. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That title Son of Man means God. God was going to allow Roman men and, and Jewish men that thought they were so great and thought they were so important to capture him. In fact, it was God's plan because he knows the reasoning of our hearts that we need to be great. And these civilized and religious men, in order orders, give orders to have him stripped, give orders to have him beaten, mocked, and then nailed to a cross in front of his mothers, in front of his followers, and in front of a crowd of people who are taunting him and spitting on him. He's hung between two criminals, even though he never committed a single crime. And on the cross, in mercy, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He prayed for our forgiveness of sins, even though he never sinned. And then he died to receive our just punishment for our sin. He took it all for us. He served us. So we didn't have to. He made himself last so that we could be first. And then he was buried. He was buried in a borrowed tomb because he was that poor. He was dependent on his father's provision even in his death. No one that day saw Jesus as great. To all, he was the least among men. Accursed. Hung on a tree. Jesus never sought to be great like men and women often do. Instead, he came to die to serve us all. The Apostle Paul says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing that he could grasp or that could be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even shameful death. I added the shameful on a cross. The disciples ran and they hid. And they probably thought, how could this great teacher become a victim? He could have been great if he had just listened to us. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive again. And his words finally, finally sank into their ears. 
Jesus was the greatest victor of all times. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the devil. And he conquered the world all by his humble, amazing love for us and his Father. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Today, are you willing to stand with Him like a dependent child trusting in His grace? If so, our Heavenly Father will receive you into His kingdom, give you eternal life, restore Imago Day, make you a new creation, make you a son or daughter of God. Repent of trying to be great and be great. Be a servant of all. Follow Jesus. Make yourself last that you might be first. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you and I praise you for Jesus. I thank you for his word. It's always true. Lord, I thank you for humbling me in so many ways this week so that I could see you. Lord, continue to do it so that I can see your greatness. Lord, continue to do it for my brothers and sisters. The greatest gift you can give us is to help us see clearly. To help us clearly see your greatness and our need for you. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today that needs you, that they would turn right now humbly like a child and come to you. Receive your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness and the amazing gift of everlasting life. Do an amazing work. Convict them of their sins. And convict them of how good you are. How loving and merciful you are to forgive them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you need somebody to pray with, well, Jeremy and the band sing a song about his greatness. I'll be over here. I'd love to pray with you. If I get busy, then the deacons will be around to pray with you. They have more than donuts. They can pray.